Um, let's, let's talk about the passage. The, you know, the relationship that Christians have with the cross, the cross of Jesus, is a paradox. You know, it's this symbol of torture, and we recognize that to be true. And so, on the one hand, we loathe the cross because it, it, it brought about the death of Jesus. And by the scriptures, through the scriptures, we've come to love Jesus and want to spend time with him and, and just admire him and are attracted to him and been ministered to by him. And so when we look at the cross, in some sense, we really loathe the cross because it's on that cross that he died. On the other hand, we look at that cross as the greatest symbol, the most beautiful symbol the world has ever seen because it's on that cross that Jesus died for us, that he went there intentionally, that he went there purposefully so that we could actually be made whole so we loathe the cross, and yet we love the cross. It's because it shows us the, the love of God for broken people like us. It gives us safety <clears throat> with him and with others. It gives us a sense of freedom that we do not walk on eggshells as Christians. Uh, it gives us a sense of power because through the cross, we're we're enlivened by his spirit, and we're able to think outside of the box and to think in new ways and have new categories, and it'd be given, given the courage to live in light of some of those ideas. And so it's, there's beauty and freedom, but there's also tremendous hope because there's so much more on the other side of the cross. And it points us to a new life and a new world and uh, a kingdom that has no end. And so we both love. And we loathe the cross, and we take those two ideas into this season called Lent, the Lenten season, in which Christians use this season as a kind of spiritual dis discipline as we walk to the cross, as we walk to Jerusalem, and walk knowing that uh, Easter is a few brief weeks away. Now, here's what I think is interesting. We get a privilege the disciples did not get. They knew they were going to Jerusalem with Jesus, but they had no idea why. But we get to go to the cross with them, and we get to go to a place that we don't really want to go, but we get to go glad, because we know what it all means. And so this, this season is a time where we can walk with Jesus together, reflecting on that reality and asking refining questions of ourselves so that we can grow in ways that time won't bring, circumstances alone don't provide, but his presence in the midst of all of those things actually does. And so we're going to talk uh, about some hard things over the next six, seven weeks uh, in light of the cross, in the shadow of the cross. And today we're going to talk about being tested by God. And the passage that we're going to look at here is Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And it's in this passage where the journey, you might say, of Jesus to the cross begins. And it begins with his being tested. His being tested and tempted. So this is what the passage says. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, de then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages like this. And we thank you for a God who enters into things that we experience ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, that he shows us a way to persevere, but more than persevere, to live. And so, Lord, I pray that as we, we reflect on this, as I reflect on the passages, that as the eyes in this room reflect on the text themselves, that you would do a wonderful work and speak your, speak your truth to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Henry Nouwen was a, a Dutch Catholic priest. He was a professor, an author. He was, a, in a sense, a, a kind of spiritual celebrity. Um, he was known mostly for his tremendous character. So uh, He spent much of his life in higher education uh, at Notre Dame and then Yale, and then he spent his last couple of years teaching at, at the Harvard School of Divinity. And there was a period, uh, I think in his second or third year, where he had a kind of revolution in his soul, and he left higher education, a tenured you know, position at Harvard, to go work in a facility in Montreal in which he cared for adults with mental and physical infirmities. And it was the kind of care that you had to use a sponge with. You had, he physically cared for one or two individuals, and he lived in this community. And his friends all thought that he was wasting his life, that he was wasting his gifts, he was wasting his talents, that he had so much more that the world actually needed from him, more than just caring for a few individuals, as wonderful as that may have been. But Nowen thought absolutely different. He thought otherwise. He believed that the best thing for his soul was to be at this place called L'Arche, L'Arche. And so he stayed there. And the reason he stayed there is because he didn't want to hide anymore, he said, behind his talent, his pedigree. He didn't want to hide anymore behind his abilities and the ways that he grew to rely on his strengths, his gifts, and the way that people saw him as only his strengths, his gifts, his mind, his writing, his celebrity. 
He didn't want to hide behind those things anymore. He wanted to live more vulnerable, more true. He just wanted to be naked before God and men, spiritually speaking. And so he chose to live there and to force himself to, to depend on God in ways he hadn't before. And it was there where he would say, I was truly tested. The irony. Not at Notre Dame. Not at Harvard or Yale. It was in this facility in which he cared for people, in which he was truly tested. And this is what he said. He said, after 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very preoccupied with burning issues. Everyone was saying that I was doing really well, but something inside me was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. I began to ask myself whether my lack of uh, contemplative prayer, my loneliness, and my constantly changing involvement in what seemed most urgent were signs that the Spirit was gradually being suppressed. It was very hard for me to see clearly. And though I never spoke about hell, or only jokingly so, I woke up one day with the realization that I was living in a very dark place, that I was experiencing a kind of spiritual death. In the midst of this, I kept praying, Lord, show me where you want me to go, and I will follow you. And so he left Harvard. He went there. And it was there where he experienced this kind of wilderness, and he realized three major temptations that he wrestled with. And in a meditation on this particular passage, he wrote a book called In the Name of Jesus. And that the three chapters of the book are three uh, points for today. He experienced uh, there and was tested um, in his faith because he knew how much he needed to be relevant, how much he needed to be spectacular, and how much he craved power. So let's think about that in terms of as we look at this particular passage, that Jesus is being tested uh, uh, um, about his own relevance, uh, whether he is spectacular enough, and he's being tempted towards another kind of power. First, to be relevant, um, Jesus shows us how, how to be faithful when we're tested or tempted with the concept or the idea of, of being relevant in the world. You know, I think that is a, a word I've heard probably more in the last five years than I ever had before. What does it mean to be relevant? Are you relevant? Are you irrelevant in the culture? It feels like there's just a tremendous amount of pressure to us for us to attain or achieve a kind of relevance in society, not just in your home, not just in your place of work, but in the culture itself that your voice needs to be amplified to a degree as an individual so that you are relevant, that you make an impact, that you are perceived by people around you as having value, that you are um, perceived by one whose presence matters. And so if I were to ask any of us, we might go, yeah, I feel that pressure, but it might be hard for us to even define, well, what does it mean to be relevant? Can you define it for yourself right now if you had to? I couldn't. Uh, not, not at least according to this, this dictionary version. To be relevant means to, to have significant and demonstrable bearing on the matter at hand 
to be relevant is to have significant and demonstrable bearing at, on the matter at hand. Now, I think very few people, very few people achieve the kind of relevance that our society sort of imposes or, in a sense, pressures us to have. Very few people. And I think even of those few people, very few of those actually can hold on to it for anything more than a season. True relevance is so elusive. Not only can we not define it, but even to hold on to it once we get it, right? So very few people can even hold on to it for even a season. And yet, it seems to be the litmus test of our lives, of our culture. What job do you want to pursue? What will make me relevant? What relationship are you going to be in? How will it bring me relevance? How will it create value? How will it determine my identity? So on and so forth. So it's a kind of litmus test. It's a kind of breaking, breaking point question. And this passage takes that head on. Why? Because Jesus of Nazareth, Matthew is trying to tell us in a literary way, is the most relevant person in heaven and on earth. As he enters into the wilderness, Matthew has painted a picture, describes a picture, in which Jesus is the most relevant person in heaven and on earth. Or I should do it that way, right? On earth and in heaven. And how do we see that? Right before this, he's been baptized. A baptism for you and I is, is an important thing. It's, it's a significant thing. Baptism for Jesus was a coronation. It was identifying in a physical way who he was in an existential way, in a spiritual way. It was saying, I see you as our king. You're the king of Israel, the true king. So it was a coronation. And unlike most baptisms, any baptism, I should, I should say, in human history, in his baptism, you see some interesting things. The most powerful spiritual leader in Israel for centuries, John the Baptist, is there. He almost refuses to, to baptize Jesus, but Jesus says, no, get out of my way. In a sense, I'm getting in that water. I'm going to identify myself with, this, with my people. So they're going to, they go into the water to be cleansed. I'm going to go into that water so that the water of, of sin and brokenness and rebellion against God, I can be cloaked and covered. I'm getting into that water so that as a king, I can identify with my people. And so for all of Israel, anybody who could comprehend that, they say, that's the most relevant thing I could ever hope for in a king. In that moment, what happens? Heaven speaks. God the Father, the Spirit comes down like a dove, it says, and God the Father says, this is my son, in whom I'm well pleased, right? Later on, the father comes uh, to him again in the transfiguration. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Who's relevant in this picture? Jesus is the most relevant person, Matthew's saying, in heaven and on earth. And the, when he goes out into the desert, he goes there to be tempted by the devil. Intentionally. He's led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. And what we see there is that in the same way he identifies with his people through baptism, 
He identifies with you and I in being severely tempted and tested. And the main way that, he, that he's tempted in this first temptation is whether or not he's relevant or not. And so where do we see that? The first thing he does is he tempts him to prove whether or not Jesus is relevant. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Let me just put that into modern language. If you're the son of God, do something impressive. If you're the son of God, create, produce, provide for yourself like God did in the wilderness. Save if you're the son of God. Sustain, defend your mission, show me your skills, show us your value. I don't care about your identity. Do, do something. Show us your relevance by producing. Demonstrate your power. Prove your power so that we know that you're worthy of our love and praise. Now, Jesus has not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, that in and of itself is a miracle. Uh, it's recognized as a miracle. We're supposed to read that as a miracle. That he's being sustained by God in that. And yet when it says that he's hungry, what we're not supposed to think is that he, he's not, it's not just stating the obvious. What it's actually saying is that it's noting that when hunger pangs return after a long fast, that that's the sign that this person is dying. It's the sign that the body is beginning to feed on itself and that the person is actually starving to death. You, you can fast for a long time without hunger pains, but when those return, it's the beginning of the end. And it's from that place that Jesus answers and he says, man does not live by bread alone. And I love the literary technique here. It's as if he can just speak monosyllabic words. But on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's the place that Jesus is in. In other words, by saying that, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God, that he's feeding on something more life-giving than just food. In other words, my relevance, my significance, isn't defined by you, devil. My relevance and my significance doesn't come from you. You don't define that for me. My Father defines that for me. God's Word has significant and demonstrable bearing on this matter and on every matter at hand. Yes, that was my true coronation, and that's true now, even now, as my body is feeding on itself. I will feed on the Word of God rather than letting you define what's relevant, even in the wilderness. So Jesus comes into the world on a mission to do what? To save the world. And yet as essential an aspect of his, uh, and yet, oh, excuse me, and yet an essential aspect of his saving the world was his being able to do what the first Adam wasn't able to do, and that was to resist temptation. 
the world is in the conditions it's in because man has an inability to resist temptation. And yet Jesus comes as the second Adam to do what the first Adam couldn't do. And that's what he's doing here. He's resisting temptation to be relevant in any other way that's not defined as God defines it. And so you might be saying, well, aren't Christians supposed to be doing things in the world? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you look in the life and the ministry of Jesus, that is exactly what he does. But he does it on God's terms, not his own. Or excuse me, not on God's terms, not on the devil's. Uh, now and goes on to say this. He says, aren't we priests and ministers called to help people, to feed the hungry and to save those who are starving? Are we not called to do something that makes people realize that we do make a difference in their lives? Aren't we called to heal the sick, feed the hungry, alleviate the suffering of the poor? Jesus was faced with these same questions. But when he was asked to prove his power as the Son of God by the relevant behavior of changing stones into bread, he clung to his mission to proclaim the word and said, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how is your desire for relevance supported and shaped? By the relevance of God's word. Jesus was tempted to be relevant as defined by something other than God, but he was also tempted, to our second point, to be spectacular in doing it. So, the first temptation, be relevant. The second, to be spectacular in being relevant. Uh, You know, to be relevant, or to be spectacular, takes a a great degree of risk. You've got to really put yourself out there, right? And not everybody has that internal sort of temperament to put themselves out there, but the pressure is great in our society to make yourself known, to, to take risks, to um, put yourself out there so that you're relevant, right, in a spectacular way. I think this city is built on stories of those who come here to be spectacular. That's why I came here. I wanted something more. I wanted to not lead a normal life. I wanted to go and do something great, something significant, and be somebody significant. You know, how many times have we heard in, in, in New York history I came here with nothing. I came here with the change in my pocket, and I worked hard, hard, and I made something of myself. And now I am successful. I'm this, I'm that, and the other. That's the New York story. This is a story. This is a city of spectacular stories. When Jesus is tempted, though, oh, let me. That's. Uh, let me just quote the story, uh, the, the lyrics here from the, the song New York, New York, right? I want to wake up in a city that doesn't sleep and find that I'm number one, top of the list, head of the heap, king of the hill. So what do we learn by this narrative? It's sort of in our DNA. It's the air we breathe. That to be spectacular has an element of being solo and doing it. Being spectacular is, uh, at least as it's defined here, is, is a solo endeavor. At the heart of the temptation that Jesus is experiencing towards the spectacular 
is that you take risks alone, and therefore you get to receive the acclaim and the credit alone. And so Jesus is brought to the top of this temple to do something spectacular. He's told to just jump off the, the temple, and that in jumping off the temple, the angels would come and they would minister to him. They wouldn't allow his, him to touch the ground, not even a toe. Now imagine, the, t- the temple is a place in which all of God's people work. And so to do that would be a kind of circus trick. It would be a stunt. It would be a way of, of proving to everybody that Jesus actually is the Son of God. Because if he jumps, that's exactly what they would do. The angels would sweep in. But Jesus says, I'm going to do something spectacular, but in a way that you can't imagine. I'm going to do something spectacular according to, the, to my father's definition of spectacular. I'm not going to put the Lord thy God to the test. So he's providing, in, in, so Satan is coming to him and he's, he's saying, he's suggesting an alternate way for Jesus to receive glory. He's saying, do you think the only way to be recognized as the the Son of God is the hard way? The only way is to go to the cross, he seems to say. Now one says this, he said, but Jesus refused the devil. He refused to be a stuntman. He did not come to prove himself. He did not come to walk on hot coals, swallow fire, or put his hand in the lion's mouth to demonstrate that he had something worthwhile to say. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, we don't have to throw ourselves off buildings to test God, do we? We can throw ourselves into relationships. We can throw ourselves into work in both in unhealthy ways and test God in the meantime. And what that means is that we throw ourselves in there and we say to God, you better save me. I may be disobeying you, but I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. I'm going to move into this relationship. I'm going to take this particular job. I'm going to do this or that ethical or unethical thing. I don't know what your opinion is on it or not, but I'm going to do it. And if you love me, you better come in and save me. And of course, sometimes when we make those decisions, our lives blow up. And sometimes we that we find ourselves in conundrums that we've sort of sort of painted ourselves into a ethical, moral corner that we can't get out of. And oftentimes what we do is, where were you, God? Jesus doesn't even begin to go down that path. He just trusts that God's plans for his life is so much greater than what the devil here is providing, even though it's so much harder. So much harder. When we throw ourselves into things, and test God, what we're doing is we're reversing the roles between us and God. We're taking, we're saying, I am in the position of power, and you have to help me. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. But Jesus, Jesus, out of his love for for his Father, out of the trust that he has gives himself to the Lord, even in the midst of that difficult uh, 
wilderness experience. He also does something throughout his life that we just can't ignore. And that is he never goes alone in a sense. He, I shouldn't say never. Though he could go alone, he invites others to be with him. And he invites others to, he invites anybody who follows him to do the same. Jesus walked not through 40 days and 40 nights here on his own, but all of his life was a time of testing and trial. And all of his ministry was a time of testing and trial. And he invites others to be with him in it. Twelve friends to walk for three years with him. And when he sends them out, he sends them how? In twos. So that they can be together. So that they can process these things together. So that they know that I don't ever have to go through an experience alone. That I don't get to or, or need to define what spectacular is. Because I have a good friend who shows me another way to be spectacular. You know, when we decided to plant this church, I thought, man, am I putting the Lord, the God, am I putting God to the test? Am I being foolish and stupid? Like, who am I to think that we would plant a church? I can't, I, you know, am I being stupid? One of the ways that God said, yeah, maybe, but you're not alone, is through Chantal. You know, it helps to have a wife who tells me when I am being stupid. That's first. But Chantal, I don't know, I can't remember how it happened, but we grabbed lunch in Dumbo, and she said, I'm going to plant this church with you. And I, you know, when she says she's going to do something, you basically just do it. But I actually just thought to myself, He's bringing somebody along to help me. I'm not crazy. Um, and for four years, we've worked so closely together that I've been able to see spectacular things that you don't get to see. You know, like the best part of working with Chantal for me is that there is just an ongoing dialogue of um, of grace, that through, in that experience, we arrive at conclusions that we never would have arrived at before. And that takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of time and energy, it takes a willingness to uh, receive confession and extend forgiveness, and to ask for, for you know, forgiveness as well. And that is the stuff you probably have experienced it if you know her in your own relationships. But that's the stuff that has, I think, been at the heart of anything good of our working dynamic. Um, she's living proof to Susan and I that we weren't putting God to the test, that we were actually seeking to obey and follow. Thank you. The third... Oh, let me read this from... From now on. He says, Christians, particularly Christians who are in leadership, and that means any Christian in New York, Christians must be rooted in the permanent, intimate relationship with the incarnate word, Jesus. And they need to find their, there the source of their words, advice, and guidance. 
when we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of life, it will be possible to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses, or and true witnesses without being manipulative. That's why I thought of Chantal, because she embodies that so well. The third point, not only is Jesus tempted to, about being relevant, tempted to be spectacular, but he's also tempted with power. Charles Spurgeon says, he helps us note that through these three temptations, it never says if the devil comes. It says when the devil comes. And we need to remember that, that in life, it won't be if you're brought into temptation, it's when you're brought into temptation. And note, all of us who may feel like you're in positions of power, maybe are in positions of power, and that can, all kinds of things, power in health, power in, in, in your, maybe your economic status, power in, in uh, your agency, right? That Jesus, that Jesus was tempted at, and when he was in a position of power. Um, he was especially devout at this particular in, in, in a devout frame of mind as he began to be tempted. Uh, he was tempted, um, he was, as he was tempted, he was, he, there was an act of public obedience that brought up upon this uh, temptation, that he had an exceedingly humble frame of mind before his temptation. Uh, he was blessed by a heavenly assurance of his own sonship before this temptation. He was filled with the Spirit so on and so forth. So all of these wonderful divine things didn't mean that the devil was going to leave him alone. Not at all. When the devil comes. When the devil comes. And when he comes to Jesus here in this last instance, he offers him power of extraordinary uh, scope. And where does it say that? Can we go there, Sook? Because again, sorry. Sorry, Sook, I'm not sure. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, what we hear in that is both a false vision and a false theology. It's a false vision that the devil actually uh, gives him a vision that is not reality. He gives him a vision of, that he can own all of the kingdom of the world if he just bow down to him in all of their splendor. But all of the kingdoms of the world are not splendorous kingdoms. Jesus came because the kingdoms of the world are actually in decay and broken and ruin and sick. Spiritually speaking, it's like the Ukraine. That's how Jesus sees uh, sees the world and the state of the state of the world. You know, when he looks at the kingdom of Jerusalem, what does it say? That he weeps over the kingdom. He weeps over Jerusalem because they're lost, like shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd. So it's a false vision that the devil gives him, but it's born out of a a poor theology. And what is that theology? 
the theology is, of course, that though the devil has enslaved these kingdoms, that he doesn't, these kingdoms don't belong to him. He's offering Jesus something that Jesus actually owns. And in his deceitful way, the way he spins things, he seeks to entice Jesus. But Jesus, of course, is too smart, even in his depletion, too strong to fall for that. And so it's a false vision and it's a false theology. And that's always the way that the devil can present us with opportunities for power. Because the way that we wield power will be unhealthy if it's a devoid or separated from the love of God. So Jesus, of course, rejects that. And so let me just ask, what is your relationship to power? What is your relationship to power and how do you wield it as it relates to the love of, of Jesus, as it relates to the love of God? What we see with Jesus is that he he gives up his authority and he gives up, up his life so that you and I can wield power well. Wield power in loving ways. And let's close as we with this idea. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England, <clears throat> and he's the one who actually sh shared this uh, comparative analysis around advice and news. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, you know, there's a difference between advice and news, and advice is something that you give to somebody in light of circumstances that you're, uh, you're not 100% sure what the outcome will be. But news is something that you give to somebody in light of something that has happened and you had nothing to do with it, but you're actually just simply responding to that news. And if it's bad news, you respond in a poor way. But if it's good news, then you respond accordingly. And then he asks, Lloyd-Jones asks us to, to think that through in terms of a military battle, in terms of a good and loving God, you know, uh, attacking a, a beachhead, going into the wilderness to do battle. And he says, imagine that this, this battle has been won and the king actually looks back to his people and he sends uh, messengers. And these messengers are messengers of good news. And the message that they send is victory has been won and therefore the natural thing to do is to live lives in which you wield power like the king. You wield power in ways that bring about healing, you wield powers in ways that are generous and, and bring restoration. You, you wield power knowing that your relevance is caught up in his story, not your own. You wield power knowing that uh, the most spectacular thing is actually what he's done, and I live in light of that. But if the victory has been lost, that same king would turn and say, what? Who would he send? He wouldn't send messengers. He sends advisors, military advisors. Go and restore this beachhead. Plan for an attack. Always be on the lookout. The battle isn't over. And what Lloyd-Jones seems to be saying is, is that we need to be reminded that the victory is, is won in Jesus. We will be tempted, but we have resources 
and we have a means in which we can respond to his particular news that will be spectacular, not only in the eyes of God, but will actually probably be confounding in the eyes of others. We want to be a church that looks like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you minister to us, help us see this season, our own desires to be relevant and powerful and spectacular. And when you show us through the text that we're going to be looking at, what that really looks like in Jesus Christ. Lord, apply these truths to our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.